Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Scholz, the CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $131 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So I'm excited to be here today with my colleagues Scott Glasser and Chuck Harris. Scott is ClearBridge's co-chief investment officer, and Chuck is our director of research and analyst for the industrials. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. Good to be here. And the topic of today's podcast is ClearBridge's market outlook for 2018. And I personally love this time of year because it's when everybody gets to look into their crystal ball and take an educated guess on what's likely to transpire over the next 12 months. Now, if you've listened to a lot of strategist updates, a lot of them are a little bit more bearish than they were heading into 2017. But if you look at global growth trends, I think they're going to continue to be strong in the upcoming year. And I think really two statistics really embody that outlook. Um, So first off, if you look at the OECD, they follow 45 different countries, and not one of those countries is in deflation right now. That's the first time that we've had that since pre-crisis. But what I think is a little bit more interesting is that out of all the countries in the world, only six of them are in a recession right now. It's the lowest number of countries in recession in the history of the world. So it's a long way of saying that global growth trends are strong. And if you think about here in the U.S., we do have a lot of positives going forward. We have the hurricane rebuild that's going to happen in the first and second quarters of this year. We also are more than likely going to get a tax reform boost. And we also have a Fed that's not too aggressive. So that all coalesces into a very good environment for the economy and also for equity markets. One thing that I think is important to note is that if you think about low inflationary environments here in the U.S., um, if you look at every recovery that we've had since 1960, those low inflationary environments average 33 quarters apiece. And I think a lot of the listeners would be uh, interested to know that we just hit that average in the third quarter of this year. If you think about an accommodative Fed and global central banks and the fact that we're going to get some fiscal stimulus, I'd make the argument that we're going to make it well past that average. And also, our ClearBridge dashboard is only signaling one out of the 11 variables of an upcoming recession. So my view personally is that the U.S. economy is going to grow at about 2.7% over the course of 2018. And a market that continues to chug higher, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if we see high single-digit returns in the market this time next year. Um, so that's my outlook. Uh, Scott, I want to get your perspective. Do you uh, agree or disagree? Um, how do you see things shaping up in 2018? So I think that you you point out something that's very correct. I think it's very difficult to look at this market through what I'll call traditional metrics. The nature of the uh, decline that we had in 2008 and 2009 was a credit-driven uh, decline. It was not your traditional inventory boom bust. And therefore, the recovery has been very different from from uh, other bull market recoveries. And I think you correctly point out that there is, um, there is precedent for an extended bull market like we're having now. And just because it is long in terms of duration doesn't mean that it is likely to either top or roll over uh, imminently. And bull, so bull markets don't die of old age, right? <laughs> That's what they say. Um, and so so I would agree with that. I, I, as much as a portfolio manager, having done this for many years, the feeling one gets is that we're very mature. Um, you're closer to a top. 
when you look at the actual data and when you try to look at some of the signs that you've seen at prior highs to see whether this is a market that's starting to either get toppy or roll over, you don't see those traditional signs. And they would include a narrowing of the market, uh, meaning that Small would not be participating. Mid would be participating somewhat. Your kind of leadership would be large. Um, it would be the number of new highs or companies making 52-week highs. It would be things like the advanced decline lines, which have been traditionally a very good judge of a narrowing market. At the end of the day, what you're looking for is a narrowing of leadership, um, which is a sign of an aging bull market. And you really don't see that um, in today's market. So as much as one may feel like it's been a long bull market. In fact, um, the signs that you would traditionally look for are not there. Let me just quickly kind of go over. As I look out to 2008, I do worry a little bit that more recently we've taken some returns that probably would have been in 2018. Sure. And we've pulled them into 2017. So maybe my expectation for returns next year is a little bit more modest than you, kind of mid-single digits as opposed to high single digits. But when I think about it, I kind of think about three scenarios. And I try to give probabilities to each of those three scenarios. I think about the scenario where earnings don't mean expectations. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's you know more of an unlikely scenario. Maybe that's 20%. And as you point out, the domestic and global economies have been strengthening. If I look at the scenario where, in fact, rates back up, which would be a very negative, I think, uh, scenario, rates back up because of a surge in inflation, and you get a 10-year that's closer to 350 as opposed to 240 right now, right. I think that would be a more negative scenario. Um, that's probably maybe a 30% chance. And then my last 50% is a scenario which is kind of more of the same. And I think that's what you're going to get. You're going to get an acceleration um, of earnings. You're going to get a little bit of an uptick in terms of rates, but still manageable. And um, in that scenario, which is my largest by far percentage scenario, you kind of get more of the same. And it argues for more of the same. Just because the clock changes, as you know, doesn't mean you need to make uh, significant changes to an asset allocation. And I think you make a lot of valid points if you think about the slow growth nature of this recovery. Um, as you said, if there's no boom or bust, that means that the economy can grow longer without it potentially tipping over. And, you know, we talked about this a second ago, but I think the Fed has traditionally been one of the reasons why we've had recessions, because at the end of an uh, economic cycle, they're very concerned about inflation. So they tighten, 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 eventually tighten too much and choke off the next recovery. Now, with tax reform being upon us, and we've made quite a bit of progress here over the last couple of weeks, right now it's between the Senate plan and the House plan, and they're trying to figure out if they can come to an agreement on one final tax bill. Chuck, I know you have been following this situation very closely over the last year. How do you judge the odds of success? Will it happen? Will it won't? When do you see it transparent, uh, trans transpiring? And then uh, what are the most important takeaways from this from a, you know, an overall legislative perspective? It's, it's pretty clear that this tax bill is going to pass in some form or another. Republicans don't really have a choice. They need to pass something. And this is, as Mitch McConnell has said, Tax reform or tax cuts are one of the few things that all Republicans always agree on. So this is something that will move forward. I feel pretty comfortable in saying that. And will it get done by Christmas? Probably. I don't think anyone wants it to uh, meander into 2018. Right. Um, you know, what does it really mean for companies? And what does it mean for personal income taxes? I, right now, 
the House and the Senate really are just solving a math problem. They're saying, if corporate tax reduction goes to 20%, I need offsets in other places to be able to make up the magic number is $1.5 trillion. That's the number. They cannot generate more than $1.5 trillion worth of lost revenues. That's the number. So they can toggle corporate tax rates up to 22%, 23%, 21%, and adjust on the other side of the ledger. That's all that's being done. Right. And that's all you're going to hear about. But this is going to pass. On the benefits side, large companies are probably going to keep a lot of the benefits and profit margins will rise. Where you see very fragmented industries, let's talk about things like trucking, where there are 30 or 40 or 50,000 truckers they will probably compete the benefits of this away in lower rates. Lower prices to gain market share. Exactly. Whereas a company that participates with two other competitors, you're probably going to not cut prices. You're probably going to just hold on to that profitability and increase returns. So it's, it's it looks to me like larger companies will keep the money mm-hmm. and smaller companies or companies in more fragmented industries or industries that are being more disrupted will probably compete it away. So you can see that also happening in things like telecom, where you already have a price war going on as well. And I've, I've taken advantage of that price war earlier this year. <laughs> so I think it's going to be very, it's, it's, it's not going to be uniform in terms of benefits across, the, uh, uh, across companies. Um, clearly not. Uh, you know, the expectation that you're going to have significant capital investment. Again, there are very few large companies that have starved their businesses for capital. Everyone is very well capitalized today. If there was better business, they would invest more, but that hasn't been an issue. Mid-sized and smaller companies, private companies, where you have no visibility, there is an uh, there is an argument to be made that you will see capital investment being done in those smaller mid-sized companies, you know, private companies, small partnerships and things like that. We can't see that. It's hard to be able to see that, but that's where I think the benefit could arise. And there are a lot of companies out there that could buy one machine tool or new computers or something like that. And just to interrupt uh, for a moment, the Business Roundtable survey, which just came out recently, did show a nice uptick in, in U.S. Uh, CapEx expectations. Yep. Um, the survey showed that the expectations are that CapEx would jump to the high single digits. They've been running kind of 4 to 5%. It is um, both large companies and small companies, I'd agree, disproportionately benefiting the, the smaller companies, uh, giving the confidence. And obviously, just for, for everyone to know or just to reiterate, the big benefit there is the ability to expense those CapEx uh, expenditures right up front instead of amortizing them, which is a big benefit for many companies. Well, and if you think about 2017, if you're a corporate manager and you think that tax reform would go through, why not hold off your CapEx you know, until 2018 when you can put the 100% expensing on it and get more of a benefit longer term? Um, so I do think that you're going to see a pickup in CapEx. You're already starting to see that transpire. And then let's not forget late cycle Usually, labor costs eat more into your profit margins, and it makes a little bit more sense to invest in plant and technologies because uh, labor is eating more of a share of your profit margins than they traditionally have. So that's the interesting thing, though, because unit labor costs have actually stayed um, very well controlled. And so that will be a variable uh, to watch significantly as we go over the course of the next you know, one to two years and will be a variable the Fed is watching. And it kind of brings me on to the, the next point is you know, deregulation. 
You know, deregulation has been a headwind to businesses really since the last major tax reform in 1986. But it has kind of ratcheted up over the last couple of administrations. So if you look at the American Action Forum, they've suggested that the cost of new regulations was $41 billion over the last four years of Bush's administration. And it was an increase of $109 billion per year during the Obama administration. And it's kind of screeched to a halt here in 2017. Now, if you think about personnel as policy when it comes to deregulation, um, this can happen no matter what happens with tax reform. Um, and we've seen it already starting to transpire here in 2017. And this has obviously been a tailwind to a number of different industries and sectors. So, uh, Chuck, I know that you're very in tune with the deregulation theme. Is there any areas of the market that are, are benefiting from this? Well, the, uh, the one clear area that's going to benefit from deregulation is going to be financials. The financials, the banking industry in particular, you've already seen some very positive deregulation uh, moves coming out of the Senate Banking Committee, uh, changing the capital requirements uh, and CCAR tests, creating more transparency. For small, mid-sized banks, it's going to be a, a real win. For the very large companies, the indications are that you're starting to see some uh, some more restraint in terms of capital requirements there as well. So we could see some more you know, money flowing back to shareholders out of the larger banks. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of M&A coming into the smaller mid-sized banks. Um, the other place that we think that there's going to be a real impact on deregulation is going to be in the energy side. Now, it's not probably for the services because you're going to see more drilling, more capability of drilling, and then therefore also more volumes. So pipelines on one hand and services on the other. It's not going to do a whole lot for oil prices. And so that may be an issue for EMPs uh, and, and oil companies in general. You're not going to get a lot of price, but you are going to get some volume and services will be beneficial, benefited as well. The other thing I wanted to add on deregulation is there's been virtually no new regulations written in the first year of the Trump administration. Right. In talking to people in Washington, what they have said is a lot of these departments don't even have new general counsels in place. And if you want to deregulate something, you need the lawyers to tell you whether you can do that. And, and that's amazing that we're almost a year into this and we don't even have general counsels. But that's what you're going to see uh, this year or in 2018 is going to be you're going to get your general counsels in place. You're going to get the legal decisions being made that will give them the opportunity for a further wave of deregulation really across all industries in some wherever it's available uh, in the next 12 to 24 months. Now, if you also think about deregulation, obviously that's a cost to any of the industries that have been highly regulated. So a lighter regulatory touch would obviously be more creative to the bottom lines of those companies. You'd like to think so. Right. So I know, Scott, you've, uh, technology has led the market here in 2017, and obviously the FANG stocks have paced most of that performance. Do you think that momentum is going to continue uh, into 2018 and or there are other sectors or maybe some industries that you're seeing some attractive op opportunities coming up? So it's interesting. Technology has clearly been the biggest winner this year. Uh, technology stocks as a whole up maybe mid 30s percent, 35, 36 percent for the year. Um, what you've seen over the last month is um, a little bit of a get back on those technology sec sectors um, and some of that money flowing into the more cyclical and more value-oriented sectors. Now, this has coincided with the tax plan right. and the general assumption that this tax plan is actually going to pass. And I will point out that technology companies will not be uh, beneficiaries of the tax plan. The average, uh, the sector as a whole has about 60% of its production overseas. 
uh, their tax rates are actually lower than the U.S. corporate average, which I think is around 26 percent. And therefore, they will not be beneficiaries. They will have some um, benefits from a repatriation, which will bring some cash back. Um, but there are other sectors that benefit more. I like to think of this more as a rubber band that just got too stretched one way. And I think technology outperformance, you mentioned FANG. I'd say technology momentum-oriented stocks overall. I think they just went too far, and now they, they, they've come back, and you're seeing some of that money flow into, again, more value-oriented sectors. Um, but I think you have to be careful with the whole growth versus value. If you ask me where we are in this growth versus value, kind of play, you think about it as a, as a play, I think that, that you do have a pulling back on the growth side. You have money going into sectors um, like industrials, which have been phenomenal and are beneficiaries of the tax plans. Financials, despite a flatter yield curve, uh, the combination of the expectation for higher rates and also deregulation have put a lot of money of that, a lot of that technology money has gone into financials. So it's more about different sectors than it is growth versus value. Of course, there are traditional big value sectors like energy that have been terrible. Um, I think you're in a kind of troughing period. I think next year will be a better uh, period of time for energy. And a lot of companies have lagged the price of oil. So There's no doubt about it. Um, You've had sectors like financials that have been very good um, with that reversal in technology. So I don't see a growth versus a value. You've clearly been in a growth scenario. I think you're pulling back from that. I don't see a wholesale shift into value. I see a more neutral uh, kind of positioning where you have growth stocks will come back into favor, and I don't think that's over yet. I th- think you'll have certain value stocks, maybe, for example, financials rest after having the enormous run they've, they've had, maybe energy in the first half of this year maybe picks up a little. So you'll have different sectors, pulls, uh, pulls and takes um, without one kind of definitive regime, I think, whether it be growth or value dictating uh, where money goes. Well, I mean, the other thing to consider is you're starting to see better growth prospects in other industries. So really over the past two years, if you really wanted to invest in something that was growing, it was hard to find something. But in the FANG and technology area, it was real growth, real visibility, real comfort being able to do that. Industrials, banks, energy, overall top lines there on a great day were maybe 1% to 2%, and 2% was aspirational. Now, with the, with the economic outlook that you're talking about earlier, you can see three, four, five, six, seven percent type of top line growth rates, and that that attracts people naturally, and so they don't need to go just to technology. There are a lot more avenues to be able to invest in in companies improving. And I, I think if you think about 2016, it was the year of value. 2017 has been the year of growth. I'm I'm agreeing with both of you that I do think it's going to be more of a muddled picture going forward in 2018. And when I'm making that determination, it really boils down to value, uh, I'm sorry, financials and value and IT or technology and growth. They make up about 30% of the underlying indices there. So if you can get those calls right, you have a pretty good head start on what the outperformance or underperformance will be. And I'm personally very excited about financials because they have so many tailwinds working for them. Deregulation is already happening. Stress tests are getting easier. It's freeing up a lot of capital to do buybacks, M&A activity, make more loans out in the broader public. Uh, You also have cost realizations. So they're paying less to comply with the SIFI designations. A lot of those regional banks are being beneficiaries as well. But they've also cut cost of the bone. If you think about branch rationalization and also the move over to mobile, um, I think all of those things really make financials a very interesting play right now. 
and I'm not sure a lot of people are familiar with this, but if you look at financials and what their market capitalization makeup of the S&P 500 is, they only make up about 15% of it, but their earnings contribution is 20%. So on top of all of those tailwinds, they're pretty cheap at this point in the cycle. Probably wouldn't hurt if you actually get some loan growth as well. Yeah. Obviously, a yield curve getting a little bit flatter could be a headwind, but I think the tailwinds outweigh the the headwinds a little bit at this point in the cycle. But also, if you, you think about financials, and financials have been underperforming really since the financial crisis, it all comes back to the Fed policy. And over the next year and a half, we're going to potentially have a very different Fed than what we've been accustomed to throughout this entire crisis. For example, Trump has the ability to appoint six out of the seven Fed voting members, the members of the, the governor's board. Um, and that's a very rare phenomenon. No president has had the ability to do that in the history of the Fed's existence. So we already have two uh, people that are known to be the replacements. We have Jerome Powell, who's going to be the new Fed chair, along with Randy Quarles, who's going to be the head of the vice chair of supervision. But that leaves another four vacancies that need to be filled. So I guess the big question is, will the Fed's response function be the same as what we've been accustomed to since 2008? And I'm of the opinion that it will be. If you think about Powell, he's probably the most dovish character that could have come on to the Fed chair uh, outside of Janet Yellen herself. So I think he's going to be inclined to continue with balance sheet normalization, slow tightening of Fed rates, uh, but not faster than the pace that we currently have. So I know that we have an opportunity here that you could have a divergent policy response to Scott, do you have any thoughts on the Fed? And I think the Fed's going to be more dovish than it's been under Yellen. I think Yellen was was kind of changing her stripes um, as we came out of um, the extraordinary easy easy uh, money conditions, um, and that I think that uh, Powell will actually go slower than Yellen would have on rates. I actually think that um, unfortunately the Fed will become a little bit more political than it's been in the past. Um, it's supposed to be an apolitical organization. But as we've seen in, in other areas, I think that um, President Trump's influence will be felt. Um, and I think that um, that pressure to keep rates go and do anything that will pump the economy will exist. Um, and so my expectation is that the Fed will actually chase uh, potential inflation up as opposed to being ahead of it. Um, as they've tried to do in, in prior uh, cycles, and that they will wait, as they say, to see uh, the whites of their eyes, as they say. So you'll have to see the actual data on a consistent basis before they react very aggressively instead of getting in front of it. Um, I think that's going to be the scenario that we're in, um, which will keep the discount rate low, um, but will create some potential risk down the road if, in fact, you get, do get a pickup in inflation. There are very few presidents that that are supporters of high rates. All presidents like low rates. Low rates are consistent with better growth prospects, and, and so possibility of re-election. So, so the likelihood is uh, that the president is going to appoint people that are going to be more dovish, more supportive. That's just where it's going to be, unless something truly untoward happens. So, may, it, so be careful with what the Fed forecasts. <laughs> Exactly. Because, because history, you know, based on history, they have not been a, good, a, a very good prognosticator in terms of GDP or inflation for that matter. Or rate hikes. The dot plots have consistently yes. underperformed. Exactly. So, so I do think you need to take that with um, – I, I think the general tone will be more dovish, but, uh, but you need to um, 
take those forecasts with somewhat of a grain of salt. Uh, the real market forecast, the surveys, uh, what you're seeing in the general economy, what we're hearing from companies will be much more valuable in terms of getting insights into the economy. Look, it's all going to be about wages. I mean, wages represent a huge proportion of what would comprise inflation. And if you actually, you know, we're at a 4.1% unemployment rate. Underemployment, some larger number than that, that is open to a huge amount of discussion and speculation. But if, you, if this economy continues to grow at a 3% rate, unemployment's going to continue to go down. Wage, there will be incremental wage pressure. You've already seen commodity pressures uh, this year as well. You know, there is the possibility or the probability that by the second half of next year, you could be seeing some real inflation, and then the Fed's going to have to adjust to that. All, all conceptually. Yeah, I think there's a view out there that the Phillips curve is dead. I would argue it's just in hibernation right now. But it kind of brings me to, you know, the question that a lot of listeners probably are thinking about the risks for 2018. What could go wrong? Um, Scott, do you see, if you had to name a risk that you think has the highest likelihood of actually materializing, what do you, what do you see? I think it's really difficult right now. Um, I think that the the biggest risk to the market in terms of um, a significant drawdown would be a um, a tightening of liquidity, which would cause spreads to 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 back up or widen out, um, which would probably be accompanied by uh, a back up in rate, some wage inflation, probably not in the near term, but looking out a little bit, and the Fed having to, if the Fed is in fact dovish, having to kind of overreact to get back in line with that. I think that's really a um, I'm not sure it's a 2018 scenario. It may be out further back. Um, so I think that, and you know, I think that would be um, that would cause some volatility, which has been missing from this market. That would cause some volatility, clearly in the market. If you got a back up and right, and a spreading a, a widening out of spreads, um, one should be looking at the bond market for hints about the stock market, um, and we do that, and uh, that's where I would be looking. So that would be my greatest concern. Whether it actually plays out in 2018 or 2019, I'm not sure about that. Um, we'll see how it plays out. I mean, you don't see a whole lot of material imbalances out there in the global economy. So there's nothing that seems like it's an imminent bubble that wants to burst, Bitcoin aside. Uh, but I do think that you can't discount the upcoming U.S. elections in 2018. Uh, I think that that could potentially be very discordant and could theoretically put some type of a cap or a lid uh, on, on the market. Uh, in the third quarter, particularly as you're moving into the elections, because right now the Republicans with the House, the Senate and the White House, they own the joint. If the Democrats are able to flip either the Senate or the House, it changes the dynamic, changes the equation and changes what you can expect the administration to be able to accomplish in the last two years. Yeah, usually with the midterm elections, you do see higher volatility. And I, I think we've been very lucky as investors this year with the low vol that we've seen, not only in equities, but you've seen it in the fixed income markets as well. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a 10% drawdown or maybe even two 10% drawdowns over the course of, of next year as this broad earnings growth that we've seen um, starts to get a little bit more narrow and it separates the winners and losers um, I would think that if you're thinking about risks of 2018, I just think it's higher rates here in the U.S. Um, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if we saw rates go to three, maybe even 3.25% by the end of next year because of a number of different reasons. I think inflation has bottomed here in the U.S. 
So core PCE recently here was 1.4%, nowhere close to two, but I think that moves higher with a tighter and tighter labor market. I think this pulse of growth that we're seeing and maybe even a little bit of extra growth with tax reform um, pushes that number up. I think balance sheet normalization, actually selling treasuries off the Fed's balance sheet here, adding more supply to the market could push yields up. And then last but not least is one that doesn't get a lot of airtime, but I think probably will once we get into the second quarter of next year, is the ECB and drawing down their QE program. So starting in January, they're going from 60 billion euros uh, buying of uh, sovereign dons down to 30. And if you think about the U.S., not at one time during any of your QE programs do we buy all of the net issuance of the Treasury. If you think about the ECB right now, they're buying seven times the net issuance of European sovereign bonds. So it's a much bigger effect in their market. And I believe that the unwind is going to have a bigger effect there and obviously draw a lot of those buyers that we've seen into U.S. markets back home, pushing our yields up higher from here. Yeah, and I think that um, when you think about when I think about rates and I think about liquidity, it is global liquidity. I think you, you hit on the right point. And liquidity is not just interest rates. Liquidity could be the dollar. Liquidity could be um, commodities going up. So there are a lot of things because commodities are many times priced in most cases, priced in dollars. Therefore, there are a lot of things that could impact liquidity as we go out. True, although you could take it the other direction and say that it, as the Europeans continue to change their, their policies – it actually is reflective of increased comfort and confidence, particularly in the banking situation in Italy. Once Italy gets solved, it enables the rest of the ECB to more or less calm down. Uh, and as we've chewed through problems, be it in Greece, be it in Italy, be it in Spain, be it virtually everywhere, you know, these are all residual issues from 10 years ago. They're finally slowly resolving themselves and it allows for a return to some type of normalcy. So one could argue, maybe right, maybe wrong, that a return to sort of normal or quasi-normal is actually really good for the world and, and, and the short-term vagaries of what might happen and rates and that type of issue, while it could be very upsetting, could actually set the stage for a much better place to invest longer term. I'd say expectations are high from a profit standpoint, and therefore you better get that growth or else you you know, or else you 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 create some risk. In terms of volatility, I'd just point out this year the biggest drawdown over the course of 2017 has been approximately three percent. Uh, that's only happened. It's only been smaller once in the history of the market. In 1995, you went the whole year with only having a two and a half percent drawdown. In studies, it's pretty clear that in years where you have this kind of extreme low volatility. It's not unusual to get an uptick the following year in volatility. So your scenario, which says, you know, I expect mid, in my case, mid, in your case, high single digits, is one that probably plays out with more volatility than we've had uh, over the past year. By the way, that is good for stock pickers. Um, and that is good, I would say, as a portfolio manager because it gives you things to buy. Um, and it gives – it's instead of a momentum-oriented market where people chase things. It gives you kind of the ability to pick sectors and pick individual stocks and create some value. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. When low ball, there's not a lot of dispersion. There's not a lot of opportunities and things that go on sale for active managers, obviously, to, to take advantage of. Well, look, and the other thing that is a corollary to both of these comments is, you know, what the market valuation is. The market valuation has tried to figure out what normalized is. 
in terms of where your where your tenure rate is. And it's been trying to figure that out for ver- really for the past five to seven years. Um, and while valuations have moved up, they're still not really reflective of what the tenure is. And it's still trying to imply that the tenure does have a lot of room to move up. Um, so you're going to have maybe some valuation risk if growth plays out. Maybe what you end up with is a is a is a race between modest valuation compression while at the same time enjoying some um, some earnings growth at the same time. And I think it's interesting if you think about a flattening yield curve. It actually usually leads volatility by about thirty months, and the yield curve started flattening significantly about two and a half years ago. So that would mean that if the charts hold true, that higher vol is in our near future, at least here in the U.S. But it's important to point out that we're talking about volatility and normal market corrections as opposed to a more dire scenario, which you have done a lot, done a lot of work on, which does not point to a, to a recession itself. And so there's a big difference between normal corrections and a more dire uh, bear market, which is driven by ultimately a recession, a contraction of liquidity that ultimately leads to a recession. Those are two different things. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking more of the going back towards a normal kind of volatility regime. Yeah, and I think obviously with the yield curve and talking about volatility, the one thing that we look at uh, at ClearBridge is an inverted yield curve. An inverted yield curve has preceded seven out of the past seven recessions going all the way back to the 1960s. Usually gives you about a lead time of one year before an economic downturn. And if you think about the yield curve flattening this year, even though it has come down substantially, we're nowhere close to an inverted yield curve, which tells us that there's still room in this economic cycle. You know, there's something that we always say, it's not if it's flattening, it's how it's flattening that matters. Short rates always go up as you get later in an economic cycle because the Fed raises rates. But it's what's the long end of the curve doing that's really tell on what expectations for growth and inflation are. And if you look at the longer end of the curve, it's been relatively stable throughout the course of the year here. Well, the other thing that you, we don't know and still don't understand is you've had so much intervention at the long end of the curve in terms of all the QEs and everything else and all the monetary policies that's out there. If it goes inverted, but it's because of a lot of this intervention that's gone on that needs to sort of subside, will that really be as much of a precursor as historically it has been where you haven't had any of this intervention? I don't know. And unfortunately, you won't know the answer to that till after the fact. So, of course. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, I'm going to take the under and, and go with uh, being cautious if the yield curve inverts, inverts. But we're not near that, so it's— It uh, doesn't matter. Well, the one thing I will say is that if you think about the last two cycles, it was Q1 in 2005. The market still ran up for another two and a half years and 30%. And it also, in uh, the previous cycle, was Q4— of 94, and the market ran up over 150% and obviously ran on for five years since then. So a flattening yield curve isn't necessarily a bad omen. Will we get to an inverted yield curve? That Different discussion. be a question for a couple of years from now. Well, Chuck, Scott, thank you so much for, for joining me here today. It's real, really been a pleasure to have you in the studio. And uh, thank you, everybody, for joining in on the podcast. Hopefully, these thoughts gave you some perspective on how we view 2018 shaping up. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of December 11th, 2017, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. 
Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.